0: we look at the fourth saying of jesus as he hung on the cross and i hope you remember what the the first three were the first saying is found in luke chapter 23 verse 34 where jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they are doing the second is found in the same book in luke 23 verse 43 where jesus says today you will be with me in paradise And last week, we looked at the third saying from John 19, verse 26 and 27, where Jesus says to Mary, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Well, today's fourth saying is found in the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. And after Jesus had been hanging on the cross for no less than three hours with his hands and his feet nailed to the wooden beams, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So please stand with me, we will read from the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 15, we will be looking from verse, reading from verse 33 to verse 41 this morning. when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask today, please, that you would quieten our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the songs that have prepared us to focus on you, to focus on the cross today. Thank you for the prayers that have been prayed, even for the scripture reading this morning, that have focused our hearts and our minds on our Savior. And we ask, please, Lord, that you continue to do that. But we pray the Spirit, Lord, would teach us, that he would give us understanding, that he would help us to delight in your word, that he would help us to respond to the gospel in a way that would honor you today. So I pray for your help as well this morning, Lord, please. Let none of my words fall to the floor today. We pray today, Lord, that you would be pleased and honored in what I say and In what we hear and how we respond today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So I wonder, have you ever been caught alone in the dark? Maybe you have experienced an electricity failure or outage while you have been at home alone and the lights went off. Or maybe while traveling on a desert road, you have switched the lights off on on your car to see how dark it can get at night, especially here in the desert. But darkness can be a scary thing, can it not? And our text today says that darkness fell over the whole land. Now remember the context here. Jesus has been nailed to the cross He's been hanging on the cross for about three hours already. He was crucified by the Romans so that he, he would die on that cross. And now when the sixth hour had come, darkness falls over the whole land for about three hours. Now understand when Mark talks about darkness, he, he wasn't saying that the skies got overcast or that there was an eclipse of, of the sun. No, there was, there was nothing natural about this darkness. The sun was abs- actually obscured by a supernatural act of God. And this didn't just affect Golgotha. The Bible says that this darkness fell over the whole land. It wasn't just that little mountain. In other words, as one commentator says, midnight came at Midday. So looking at our first point this morning, we see in verse 33 how Jesus died in darkness. As I said, Jesus had been on the cross for three hours. Now at the sixth hour, which is, which is high noon, darkness engulfed the whole, the whole of the land until the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And this is nothing less than an intentional miracle of God and something that we need to understand. And I think there are two things God was saying to the people through this darkness, and He's saying to us as well, who are reading this account. I think number one, the darkness served as a reminder. The darkness served as a reminder. The religious people who were there would immediately think about what God did during the Passover centuries before. Passover refers to a time when God brought ten plagues on the people of Egypt, I remember, under the... The leadership of Moses. And the ninth plague was a three day darkness, followed by the tenth plague, which caused the, the death of the firstborn children. We see that in Exodus chapter 10. So the three hours of darkness at the cross was really an announcement. Warren Wiersbe says that the darkness of Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved Son the Lamb of God was giving His life for the sins of the world. Something incredible was about to happen. Secondly, I think the darkness was a sign. It was a sign of God's judgment. And throughout the Bible, God uses darkness as an image of judgment. We see it in Exodus chapter 10, in Exodus chapter 13. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 13. We see it in Jeremiah 15. We see it in Joel chapter 2, chapter 3, and also in Amos chapter 5. There was a judgment that was happening. God was judging our sin as guilty, and He was placing all of our sin on His Son, Jesus Christ, our guilt, our unrighteousness, and our shame upon Jesus Christ. And the judgment that we should have received was being placed on the sinless Lamb of God. Listen to this fulfilled prophecy from the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, as I said, this darkness was not just an eclipse. It wasn't just um, clouds getting in the way of the sun. This was a supernatural act of God as a sign of God's judgment on sin poured out on his Son. Again, one one Wesby says all creation, including the Son, sympathized with the Creator as he suffered on that cross. Secondly, we see verses 34 to verse 36 Jesus dying alone. We see Jesus here dying alone look at verse 34 in your bibles mark says that on the ninth hour jesus cried with a loud voice he cried with a loud voice now the english word cried which we have in our bibles can also be translated as as to shout this wasn't like a weeping this was a shout do you remember the words of psalm 22 which we read earlier on which was a clear prophecy of this moment in history Remember the words of Psalm 21, verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning, it says. And that literal rendering of the word groaning could be um, translated as roaring. Roaring. Like the, the deep, resonant roaring of a lion. If you remember when we used to meet at the Emirates Park Zoo... When we used to go early on a Friday morning, we would hear the lions roaring in their cages. And you could, you could feel the, the tremor in your feet as these, these lions were, were roaring. If you can imagine this roar of a lion coming out of the darkness of a, of a jungle, you have a good idea of the, of the picture that is being painted for us here in the Scriptures. Jesus' fourth cry wasn't just a meek little whimper Weeping on the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And this roaring, I think, stirred the hearts of men and caused the hair to stand up on the backs of the necks of these soldiers. But notice also that this statement from the cross is first quoted exactly as Jesus would have said it in his heart language in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, Laba, Sabaktani why do you think the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to preserve Jesus' original language here in, in, the, in, in, in this passage? Well, Charles Sundal, another uh, Christian commentator, he suggests that it's because the language of Jesus' birth captures our attention, and it helps us to see just how deep Jesus' anguish was at that moment, and how intense of a response this this really was now. As I was as I was thinking through this, I, I thought of um, even my children when they were younger. Sometimes at night they would they would talk in their sleep. Some of my children, and while they're dreaming, they wouldn't be dreaming in in English. They would be dreaming in Marathi, in their in their in their heart language. But I was also thinking of of a sister in our church. I'm going to use her name. I hope she doesn't mind, Lou thinking of you, Lou, you know, whenever she gets excited about something, you know, she starts talking in Portuguese. And at times I have to say to Lou, Lou, I don't know Portuguese. Please, can you tell me what you're saying in English? And I think that's the same thing that's going on here, isn't it? Jesus has, God has preserved Jesus' words for us in his mother tongue, exactly as he said it, so that as we, we read those words, we get a better understanding of the of the true isolation of his soul, so that we understand better just how forsaken Jesus really was that day. Well, we need to ask the question, what did this cry mean? What did this cry mean? What was Jesus saying when he said he was forsaken by God? You know, I think of all the words from the cross, this is probably the most difficult to really understand. And if you feel confused by what Jesus said, then, then you're not alone. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he honestly admitted that he could not figure this out. Uh, Martin Luther also, he wrestled with his text until he, he could not explain it, no matter how long it took. But I think the question is, is not so much how, but I think we can understand why. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus was separated from, forsaken by His Father. Forsaken by His Father. Now, all His human life, Jesus had known what it was like to be forsaken. The members of His own family forsook Him for a while. People in His hometown had turned against Him. His his nation, the Jewish nation, had rejected Him. And as John put it, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And John tells us of a time when many of Jesus' followers, his own disciples, turned and walked with him no more. So Jesus was not, was not unfamiliar with being rejected or being forsaken. Even his close, his close 12 followers, his disciples had forsook him in his hour of need. Remember when they fled in panic. So Jesus knew what it was like to be abandoned. He knew what it was like to be forsaken. But up until this point, Jesus had always had the Father. He had always had the Father. When trouble came, He would slip away to the mountains to to pray with His Father. He would talk with God for hours, and God would talk with him. When others turned away, when others forsook him, Jesus could always slip away to to the healing, reassuring fellowship with God the Father. But now, something completely different is happening. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, even this blessing which he had his whole life was gone. God had forsaken His Son. He had separated Himself from Jesus. You know, some have read this text and said that Jesus was not really forsaken by God, that Jesus only felt that way or that He was quoting Psalm 22, that His experience on the cross inspired Him to recite this verse He had learned as a child. But, but I would disagree with That type of explanation. You see, Jesus, God Himself in the flesh, He's the one who had inspired David to to write Psalm 22, hundreds of years before. He had inspired the psalm. It's not the other way around. Jesus was indeed forsaken by His Father. I think one thing that helps us to see this is the different way that Jesus even addressed God in this moment. He spoke to His Father three times from the cross. And two of those times, Jesus called Him Father. But not this time. Now here, Jesus is calling Him God. It's as if you were to walk up to your own Father and and address Him as as Mr. rather than than Dad or or Daddy. So there is a separation and alienation that is definitely happening here. God has forsaken. He has deserted son, Jesus. In fact, this word that we translate forsaken is the same word that Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10 when when he said, do your best to come to me quickly for, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me. It's the same word, deserted, forsaken. It's a word that means to be totally abandoned, to be totally neglected, to be banished or to run away from. Or to be totally separated. Now the question is why? Why did God do this to His Son, Jesus? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Turn there with me, please. Very, very important that we look at this verse, that we read this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, God made Him talking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 puts it this way. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins on his body on the tree. Now, 2 Corinthians is not saying that Jesus was, was a sinner. It's not saying that. Second Corinthians is saying the same thing as 1 Peter chapter two, that Jesus bore our sins, he bore our guilt upon his shoulders on that tree. All the sins of humanity have been gathered together into one pile of evil, and somehow that pile has been placed on Jesus Christ. You think of all the lasting think of all the idolatry. You think of all the materialism, all the greed, all the, the witchcraft, all the hatred, all the envy, all the, the murder, all the abuse. Every sinful thought, every selfish sin, all of it has been placed on Jesus. Now try and imagine in your mind every sinful act that has ever been or ever will be committed, and pretend that's in a pot, and it's distilling, and there's, a sm- there's this, this smoke, and this aroma, of this poisonous concoction, with this terrible stench, of this filth, so revolting, that you can't help, but cover your nose, cover your nose with a handkerchief, and, and look away, your eyes are watering, and you feel, Nauseated. If you can imagine that, I think you begin to get a fair idea of the repulsion that was in the holy heart of God the Father that day as he looked upon his son. I mean, on the first Good Friday, that one spot on Golgotha was the most hated square foot of area. In God's universe. And I wonder, God the Father looked away. You see, God is holy. The Bible says He is holy, holy, holy. A God who cannot dwell with sin or with sinners. A God who is holy, who judges sin righteously. He cannot tolerate sin. The fact is God by His very nature cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Do you remember the words spoken to Adam in the Garden of Eden? Remember God said, if you eat of this fruit, what would happen? You will die. And what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God? God immediately banished them from this garden. Why? Because God and sin cannot dwell together in the same place. It's like trying to mix oil and and water together. It doesn't work. It's like trying to put two magnets together at the same pole. They are repulsed. God, by His nature, cannot dwell with sin. you, You and I both know this firsthand. Because our own experience has shown us that when we sin... We isolate ourselves from God, isn't it? I mean, when, when you do something you know God doesn't want you to do, how, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like praying? Do you feel like reading your Bible? Do you feel like God is close right there with you when you knowingly choose to sin? Of course not. Of course not. When we sin, we, we feel isolated because sin separates us from God's fellowship. Well, multiply that feeling by billions and billions of times and and you begin to understand why Jesus cried out in this great voice of desperation. Where are you, God? I can't feel your presence any longer. You know, the truth is Jesus went through hell on the cross because really the essence of hell is to be cut off from God. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Talks about people in hell. It says they will be punished with everlasting destruction, but also they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And that is just what Jesus is experiencing here, isn't it? He has been punished, not for his own sins, but for your sins, and for my sins, and for the sins of the world. And he's been shut out. From the presence of his holy Father, Max Lucado has written a story to to illustrate this, and in the story he invites us to imagine that we have several children, and one of them contracts a disease—a very unusual disease, something more unusual than COVID. Okay, pretend. Okay, and the doctor tells us that the only way that we can keep the rest of our family, uh, the rest of our family safe. From contracting this disease is to is to put our sick little child in an isolated room and never let our child or anyone see him again and so with your heart breaking you carry your child and you put your child in this isolated room in this lonely hospital not to see this child again and you walk out and you close the door and as you walk away you can hear The child saying, Mommy, Daddy, where are you? And as you walk down the steps, you can hear him screaming out the window, Mommy, Daddy, where are you? But you steal yourself and you leave him isolated. You leave him alone. You leave him separated. Your heart is breaking, but the truth is you can save him or your children. And you choose to save your children at his expense. You see, this is why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was an agonizing cry of separation and loneliness. Thirdly, we see in verse 37 to verse 39, Jesus dying to reconcile us to God. Jesus dying to reconcile us to God. Atonement has been made. The task is complete. Look at verse 37. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he died. I'm fairly certain this loud cry was the cry recorded in John chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus says, It is finished. And I'm not going to spend time on that now. We will look at that in two weeks' time. But the work of salvation is done. It is finished. It is accomplished. I think as tangible evidence, Mark he notes for us in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And this is important. It's an important detail that we have in this gospel. And do not miss this. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't man tearing it from the bottom to the top, but God from top to bottom. Now, what's significant about this curtain in the temple? Well, during the Old Testament time, before Jesus died on the cross, a chosen priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people of God, uh, to God. And part of this worship included the, the priest who had to, he had to go through the door, he had to enter the, the outer court, he had to pass the, the, the altar, and then he had to go into the, the holy place and eventually into another inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the priest would encounter the the presence of God there. There's some myth saying that the priest who went into the Holy of Holies, he would have to tie a thread around with bells. And as soon as those bells would um, stop um, making a noise, they knew that he was dead and they would pull him out um, from this cord by his foot. Um, We don't have that record in, in the scriptures, but there's some myth about this. I mean, this was the Holy of Holies. This is where, where God dwelt. This is where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And Mark says, And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two. He's referring to the curtain that separated the, the Holy of Holies from the holy place, from the rest of the temple. This was a large curtain It was about 80 feet tall, and it was about three inches thick. The curtain was a symbolic barrier between between God and the rest of humanity. God cannot dwell with sinners. It was a symbol of that. And this curtain, it tells us, was torn in two. Not by human hands, but by the hand of God from top to bottom. Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus had opened for the whole world a new and a living way. And the tearing of the curtain indicates that through, through Jesus' death on the cross, all people now had access to God. God in all of His glory is now freely and fully accessible to all men and women who come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Through the death of Jesus, God is bursting forth to dwell no longer behind a veil, He's bursting forth no longer to dwell in a house built with wood and stone and precious jewels. He's now ready to dwell in the hearts of his people. Look at verse 39 there. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. On the lips of a Gentile Roman centurion we see this confession being made truly this man was the son of god An amazing testimony it was not one of his miracles or it wasn't one of his teachings that evoked this confession it was his obedience to the cross it was his passion for his saviors for his father's glory And like the centurion, Mark wants us to understand the significance of this event. How God is reaching forward into us, inviting us to confess Jesus as the Christ. On the cross, Jesus was our substitute. On On the cross, Jesus went through darkness So that we might have light. Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. And he was condemned so that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul in in Romans 8 Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A.W. Pink, I mentioned him last week. He writes. Jesus entered that awful darkness that I might walk in the light. He drank the cup of woe that I might drink the cup of joy. He was forsaken that I might be forgiven. I think the bottom line of what I'm trying to say this morning is that Jesus said those words so that you wouldn't have to. So that we would never have to be forsaken. So that we would never have to be condemned. So that we would never have to know what it's like to be separated from God. These very words would never have to be spoken by you and I. If we put our faith and our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary. I think that is the greatest thing about being a Christian that we would never have to be forsaken by God. Nothing in heaven or hell or on this earth or above this earth or in this earth can separate us from the love of God. I can say with the psalmist, where can I go from your spirit? Father God, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, O Lord my God. And no matter where I go, God would be with me. He is indeed an ever-present help. And because of Christ's death on the cross in my place, we don't need to be forsaken. If you're not a believer or a Christian this morning, and you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe the second time or third time, I want to urge you to put your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross of Calvary. His substitute was complete. And we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. When Jesus shouted, it is finished. He had, a fi- he had finished the work of atonement. For you, as he suffered on that cross. Jesus is your substitute. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins based on what Jesus has done on your behalf. And then by faith, receive Jesus as your Lord and King. Every Easter Friday, I'm reminded of these people, these devotees, these Catholic devotees in, I think it's in the Philippines where they take the cross and they walk through the streets and they're whipping themselves and they're following the passion of Jesus and they get nailed to the cross with these sterile construction work nails and they hang on the cross for a few minutes and are taken off, trying to really pay for some of their sins, trying to pay for what they have have done on their own behalf. And that's not what God requires of us. Jesus himself has been our substitute. Jesus himself has paid the price that needed to be paid for our sins. As he bled and died on that cross, as he suffered that shame, he finished the work that needed to be finished. And like the centurion who looked upon Jesus on that cross, Mark wants his readers to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the mediator, the one before God and man. But the question is today, have you done that? The question is, will you do that? It's a question that only you can answer. Don't leave here today alone this morning, separated from God. If you're a believer here this morning, understand in 1 John, we talked about it this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John the Apostle tells us if we are faithful, sorry, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us from our sins and to forgive us of them. John the Apostle is talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. Because believers sin, don't we? Believers sin. And when we sin, We confess our sins. We look to the cross and we say, Lord, I believe what you did on that cross was for me, was for my sins. And forgive me for taking my sins so lightly. Forgive me for choosing to sin when you have made me righteous. And we continue to walk with the Lord. We don't need to be separated from his fellowship. We don't need to be separated from his love. Because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, we can walk in unity with him all the time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you are separated from Christ. If you have not put your faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on that cross, you are separated from him. like Mark, is challenging us this morning. Will you put your faith in what Jesus has done for you? As he cried out to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry was on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. He's quoted the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you died in darkness. We thank you, Lord, that you were judged for us to take away our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you were separated, that you were willing to go through that terrible isolation for us. Lord, thank you this morning that you reconciled us to the Father. Through your death, Lord, we cling to the cross. And thank you, Lord, for that promise, that nothing can separate us from the the love of God. Lord, there's so much that we can apply this morning. I pray that your spirit would continue to apply the work of the gospel to us this week, that he would continue to preach this message to us. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in our response. So, Lord, we pray for your glory and we pray for our joy that you would save the lost amongst us. And that you would draw those who are struggling with sin to you today. That they may know of your love and know of your forgiveness. And know of the unity and the closeness and the fellowship that we can have because of Jesus today. We ask it in his precious name.